the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think about it in the church today, there are multifaceted ministries that we engage in on a routine basis. Ministries to folks that are sick and shut-ins. There's marriage ministries, youth ministry, recovery programs, healing services, just about everything you can imagine even ministry for those that have physical disabilities. But if you think of that list, there's one category that is strangely, quite suspiciously, missing. And that is ministry to individuals and families dealing with mental or psychological disorders. They are often ignored, patronized, or simply pushed aside. Why is that? Is it because of some stigmatism? Is it based largely on ignorance? Maybe a combination of both. We learn more about this important topic from Matthew Stanford. Matthew is the CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston, Texas. He serves as an adjunct professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine and the Houston Methodist Hospital Institute for Academic Medicine. His latest book is called Grace for the Children, Finding Hope in the Midst of Child and Adolescent Mental Illness, newly released by InterVarsity Press. And Matthew, thanks for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Why does it seem, as I suggest, of the laundry list of ministries that the church gleefully engages in, that this one is so suspiciously missing, that of ministering to those who might suffer from mental or psychological disorders or their families? Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, it it really is a combination of stigma and and just kind of lack of education or naivete. And and really what's even stranger, I I think, or maybe somewhat ironic, is that many of the ministries that you mentioned, when you think about prison ministries, addiction ministries, homeless ministries, human trafficking ministries, you think about these ministries to populations that have extremely high rates of mental illness, yet very few churches incorporate mental health issues into those ministries. So I think there's really just a general stigma in the population. We all just kind of think we know what it is to be mentally ill. It's just to be sad or it's just to be anxious, and people should just kind of get over it. And I suppose, too, the notion of some of these crossover ministries, as you suggest, that might sometimes give us the impression that we're doing an adequate job as the church, ministering to people with unique needs in these arenas, when in fact that's just kind of window dressing. It really doesn't get down to the notion of upfront dealing with this. And and maybe it's out of ignorance. Maybe there's a notion that the church hasn't been all that well equipped because it's a continually growing science. And I think oftentimes um, in anything that we're continuing to learn on, like for example, on the topic of autism, where we know it exists, do we really fully understand where it comes from or if there are certain families that are more predisposed towards potentially having a child that's autistic versus those that aren't? You know, science is continuing to, to emerge and answering all of these questions, and it's almost as if the church has sort of decided to sit that one out. 
No, I think you're right. You know, and we, we are looking at, you know, the most complex of all the organs. You know, I mean, the liver's complicated, but it's nothing compared to the brain. So uh, we're looking at a very young discipline when it comes to things like psychiatry and psychology in the context of other medical uh, traditions. And so, so I do think that, uh, you know, the, the church is just kind of set aside. And some, you know, I, I use addiction ministries a lot of times as an example because, you know, a lot of times addiction ministries will tell you that they have, you know, great success. And, uh, you know, they, they can be really, I can say, well, are they hit and miss? Do you find one guy that really just what you do is very effective and another guy, doesn't matter how hard he tries? And they'll often say, well, yeah, that's true. And I said, well, do you, understand, you know that about half of all people with an addiction also have an underlying mental health problem and they are primarily self-medicating to control this undiagnosed mental illness? And they don't, they don't know that. They, they don't even know that that is like that. And so once they know that and you can begin to incorporate, uh, you know, some psychological science, it doesn't change the spiritual aspects of the ministry or the gospel-centeredness or the Christ-centeredness of the ministry. It just adds in more tools that God's given us so that we might uh, alleviate people's suffering. To be sure. And let's spend some time talking about ways in which we can do just that, to, to help provide a sense of comfort. And so many of these families, I think, uh, the, the characterization is they're just worn out. And perhaps no one understands what it's like to have a child that is dealing with autism or psychological or mental disorders until you have one. But if you talk to the parents, they will largely indicate that they just simply feel unsupported and completely worn out. No, that's absolutely true. In fact, stress researchers, when they study the effects of stress on the brain, uh, the population that they use as their test subjects are the mothers of children with disabilities like autism and mental health problems because the level of stress that they endure is extreme, uh, and it has significant physiological and physical effects on their bodies. And so you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I know of a family that went to a church, you know, here in the Houston area, and as they walked up with their son, who obviously has autism, uh, it was the first time they were visiting. They were met in the kind of lobby of the church as they went in, and, and they were stopped by an usher who said, we don't have anything for you here. There's no reason for you to come to church here. And that really happened, because they were trying to be honest that they had nothing uh, that could help them support this child, that they didn't even have the ability to take care of this child in their Sunday school. But imagine that in the, in the church. I mean, that just really doesn't seem what Jesus has set up for us. What we need to do is we need to say, what's coming in our back door, and how can we step out uh, and, and serve these individuals as they seek out the Lord. So, uh, so you know, putting in buddy ministries to help with people with autism, intellectual disability, getting our clergy trained on mental health problems, uh, training our Sunday school staff uh, on issues like that, uh, making special arrangements for VBS and summer camps and things. I mean, these are children that have that are the same blessing as every other child that God's given to their parents. Uh, and they need to be spiritually uh, affirmed, spiritually ministered to, just like their parents, setting up support groups to their parents, giving a respite to the parents, being there uh, to help these parents care for these children. Is it important, in your opinion, Matthew, for us to, us to sort of reset the way we think of these families as well? In other words, too often it tends to be, oh, that's the Jones family, their son has autism, or, you know, the sense of sort of defining the family by the child's disorder. And I asked that question because many, many years ago, a very dear friend of mine revealed that his daughter um, had given birth to a Down's syndrome child. 
and he pondered the idea as to whether or not it might have been ultimately better for his daughter and for the sake of the family if that baby had been aborted. Ironically, fast-forwarding 20-something years, that is now by far his favorite grandchild above all of the rest. And the amount of love that that child has brought to the family and the way that child has brought the entire family closer together is absolutely remarkable. I wonder if the stigmatism of just defining families by the negativity as opposed to who they actually are as people, what their potential is, who they might be in Christ, is maybe the better way of looking at this. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think we do have a tendency to, when people have any type of mental health or or brain type of uh, disorder, that person becomes a disorder, as you described. And in a sense, for these families and these, these children and adolescents, you know, we, in a sense, write them off as a death sentence. You know, this child has Down syndrome, their life is over. Their child has Down syndrome, their family's life is over. But that's simply not true. Your example right there uh, demonstrates that that's not true. Now, if we then begin to treat that child as simply nothing more than a damaged brain uh, and uh, that he has no future, he has no purpose, he has no uh, ability to, to be successful, then absolutely it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But that's anti-biblical. I mean, God has a plan and a purpose for that child. God wasn't asleep when that child was born with Down syndrome, and God is going to be present to provide sustaining grace for that family, and the Church is an important and integral part of that. So. I really think what we have to do is we have to, as people walk in the back of the church, we have to ask ourselves and we have to ask the Holy Spirit, how can we step into their uh, situation, regardless of what, if they have a, a disabled child or not, and help them grow in their relationship to God and help them care for their family? What, what can we do? And each individual family is going to be different. If you've just joined us, we're visiting today with Matthew Stanford. He is the CEO of the Hope and Healing Center and Institute at Houston, Texas, also adjunct professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine and the Houston Methodist Hospital Institute for Academic Medicine. He is a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science and is the author of a number of best-selling books, including his latest, Grace for the Children, Finding Hope in the Midst of Child and Adolescent Mental Illness, newly released by InterVarsity Press. We'll take this time out, come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the program. A special visit today with Matthew Stanford. Matthew is an adjunct professor of psychiatry at Baylor College of Medicine and the Houston Methodist Hospital Institute for Academic Medicine. He is the CEO of Hope and Healing Center and Institute in Houston, Texas, the author of a number of best-selling books, including his latest, Grace for the Children, Finding Hope in the Midst of Child and Adolescent Mental Illness. I know certainly, Matthew, for any family, the, the discovery, the diagnosis of a son or a daughter that has anything from the spectrum of autism to psychological mental disorders 
has got to be a punch in the gut. They must feel at a level, perhaps, that they uh, they must have done something wrong, that somehow God is punishing them for all this. And maybe they see as evidence of that the fact that as they've gone to the church trying to find some answers, trying to find some help, they've largely been either told, nothing to see here, or sorry, we can't help you. And it's reminiscent of the story that you uh, reiterate that we all know from Scripture, from the book of John, in your new book, when you talk about the experience of the disciples walking with Christ and coming alongside a man who was blind from birth, and the disciples wonder out loud to Jesus, who had sinned here, this man or his parents? You know, that is one of my very favorite stories, but I think it really speaks to the kind of stigma, the stigmatization of disability. Uh, I mean, I literally have a friend, uh, a very intelligent man, multiple PhDs, uh, actually a very well-known individual who was told that his autistic son was the res- by a church was told that he was the result of a generational curse. Uh, so, I mean, you know, when you hear things like that, I mean, in a sense, since the church represents God to many people, it's God that's turning his back on you to these families. And really what we have to do is we have to step in uh, to that space, much like Jesus did with that man born blind, and say, no, no, this isn't an issue of sin and condemnation and judgment. This is an opportunity for the works of God to be manifest in an individual's life. And a family does have to grieve the loss of the, the dreams and expectations they had for a child that may struggle with these types of problems. But that doesn't mean that there are no dreams and expectations. It just means that the dreams and expectations that they had were not the accurate dreams and expectations. They need to form new dreams and new expectations for that child. And as the example that you gave earlier with a, a gentleman who has a Down syndrome grandchild, those can be incredible dreams and expectations. They may be better dreams and expectations than the family had to begin with. Uh, but it's those unrealistic dreams and expectations that we held to begin with. Uh, that uh, that cause us uh, to need to grieve and then allow us to kind of remake a new normal as we move forward. And indeed, uh, these are opportunities for us to grow in faith ourselves and uh, for us to uh, express the love of Christ to these children. There's a startling and stark reality that you disclose in the book that I think ought to cause all of us to give pause to this arena where the church has unfortunately come up so short from a ministry standpoint, and that is inside of Grace for the Children, you talk about the fact that surprisingly, most parents upon the diagnosis of autism or um, some sort of psychological issue with a child are more likely to go to a clergy member even before they engage the services of a professional mental health provider or a doctor clergy first, and yet we say, nothing to see here, move along. We are really spurning an enormous opportunity, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. It is, it is the divine opportunity of a lifetime. In fact, I often say that I think mental health is the mission field of the 21st century. People in, the, in psychological distress, people struggling with these problems, people who have children struggling with these problems, they are more likely to go to a clergy before they go to a physician a mental health care provider, and that's that's what was information found by the National Institutes of Health and a number of very large studies nationally, uh, and that's just a known fact. If you go to a mental health care provider and you ask them, who do people go to first when they seek assistance, they will tell you clergy. When you ask clergy, they have no idea that that's true. 
Uh, in fact, I've had clergy tell me, well, I never have anybody with those problems come to me. And that's not because they, you know, it's because they don't walk in the door and say, oh, I think I woke up this morning and have bipolar disorder. I think my kid has, you know, depression. They walk in and they say, I'm not getting along with my child. I lost another job, you know, whatever kind of what you think of as common problems. But the underlying, you know, root of it is a mental health issue. Uh, and really what we need to do is equip clergy and ministry staff to recognize these problems. We need to put uh, mental health services, supportive services in place within faith communities, uh, and we need to connect faith communities to professional mental health care, because, you know, churches are the front door of the mental health care system, and if we can open that door, we can absolutely transform society. What are some of the first steps that churches that begin to awaken to the reality of this area of ministry, the tremendous opportunity that it poses? In terms of learning first steps, this is such uncharted territory, and I think people tend to be a little bit off-put. They're nervous. They don't know how to behave. They don't know how to engage. Is there a resource? Is there some place where you can send churches so they can learn how to go about developing better and more effective ministry to families and individuals um, that have a child that is struggling with mental illness or autism? Yeah, absolutely. We actually developed a website uh, and have an entire training program uh, for churches uh, from very low-level general training that helps people recognize uh, mental health problems, how to make referrals, how to relate to families and individuals, all the way up to a very intensive uh, mental health coach training. So if they go to mentalhealthgateway.org, that's mentalhealthgateway.org, they will find a whole set of resources there, lots of videos, lots of online training, curricula for support groups, uh, databases to help families get to uh, care. Uh, And so there's a lot of resources there for pastors, ministry staff, uh, and individuals themselves that are struggling with mental health problems or their family members. That's a great resource. And of course, um, your book can be a wonderful starting point. And I would imagine to some degree, people that are sensitive to this topic, maybe because there's someone in their family, um, and so they're aware of some of the challenges that families face in being able to locate resources. Uh, Maybe a good place to start is to get a copy of your book, Race for the Children, kind of learn more about this, and then maybe sort of take on the mantle to be the one that goes to pastor and says, Pastor, I think I'd like to help the church start a ministry to these families. What do you think? Yeah, we've found that uh, exactly as you described, uh, in churches that have brought these things online and done this really well and successful, it usually starts with an individual who has lived experience. They either themselves had struggled with a mental health problem or they had a family member that they walked through with it, and now they want to pass that information and knowledge and ministry on to someone else. And so a passionate individual with some lived experience uh, can make a huge difference in a church, uh, and it really gives the pastor uh, an opportunity to have a point person. Because again, we don't want to, you know, this is a congregational ministry. We don't want this just to be kind of the hired gun, you know, we're going to say, oh, pastor, you need to start seeing people with mental health problems. We need to have a congregational uh, ministry that serves people that walk in the door that have mental health problems. So whether they sit down next to somebody in the back of the church in the pew, or they go straight to the senior pastor's office, everybody's on the same page, and everybody knows what's going on. And that passionate, lived experience individual uh, can be a, a great point person to begin and really uh, 
formulate this ministry. Well, and I appreciate you underscoring that, Matthew, because you're right. This shouldn't be seen as sort of the Lone Ranger rides into town. They've got some awareness of this and want to take on a ministry um, ad hoc kind of, you know, set up a tent tomorrow and be in business, so to speak. Uh, This is something that can, and I think most naturally should, involve the entire church. And there might be some that put up some resistance and say, well, this could be disruptive. What what if somebody uh, acts out? What what if in the middle of the sermon, an individual with autism wants to ask the pastor a question? And we feel as if we've sort of disrupted the routine, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe in some ways this can teach the church to, to be more passionate and compassionate and and recognize the broad spectrum of people, all for whom Christ died, all for whom need to hear the good news of the gospel message, and all for whom need to be loved. Absolutely. I mean, I, I often say, you know, people are important to God, not ceremonies. And, you know, if somebody disrupts your ceremony because they make noise or uh, whatever, uh, and again, we're not talking about someone being aggressive or, or anything like that. We're just talking about someone who maybe isn't following along with this very rigid tradition that we have Sunday mornings. Uh, that That's a wonderful opportunity. That's a wonderful time. I mean, my the church that I actually attend uh, here in the Houston area, I mean, one of the, in my opinion, one of the best ministries they have is there's a, there is a, uh, uh, a place called Hope Village that's near us that uh, men and women that have intellectual disabilities, they live there. Uh, when they're not able to be cared for by their families, and so all of them are adults, and and they come to church at our church. A, a whole busload of them comes every uh, Sunday morning, uh, and they all sit, uh, you know, in the service along these two rows, and, and they have varying levels of intellectual functioning, uh, and sometimes they do yell out, and uh, you know, and and it's you know, it's a, you know, that's what it is to be human. We're we're all on a continuum. It's not an us and them kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, I'm called to care for those individuals, and those individuals are called uh, to offer assistance and care to me, and uh, that's what the Church is. Uh, it's not a ceremony on Sunday morning, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of times we get caught up in that kind of rigid, uh, you know, kind of structure that we have, and we kind of forget the people. Point well taken. The book, again, is called Grace for the Children, Finding Hope in the Midst of Child and Adolescent Mental Illness, newly released by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at Christian bookstores across the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. More information about Matthew's ministry online at hopeandhealingcenter.org. That's hopeandhealingcenter.org. And Matthew, we appreciate you taking some time today to sort of pull back the proverbial curtain and shed some light on this very important ministry opportunity. I appreciate you having me. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Over the course of the last many weeks since we have been experiencing shelter in place, it's raised all kinds of interesting dynamics. Certainly the dynamic of how do you manage and deal with perhaps being stuck at home and you can't work and the impact to your income, to long-distance learning for our children, and then most certainly suddenly being thrown together as a family unit, all four walls locked down, a lot of the usual pressure relief valves that might be there to go out and get some exercise, send the kids out to play, things of this nature. Well, so much of that has been taken away from us. And now in the midst of this new normal, 
The question is, are there ways in which, in the midst of the corona pandemic, that we can learn to strengthen our marriages? And while perhaps some have felt like this is jail time, (laughs) hopefully we can redeem the time and put it to good use for the benefit of our marriage relationship. Best-selling author Rob Flood joins me. Rob is community and care pastor at Covenant Fellowship Church in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Previously, he had served at Family Life Ministries in Little Rock, Arkansas. He's got a new book out just released by New Growth Press called With These Words, Five Communication Tools for Marriage and Life. Rob, great to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Boy, we're learning new ways to try and communicate and learning perhaps that the person that we've been married to for years, we don't quite know them the way we thought we did. <laughs> and maybe, maybe there are some bad aspects to that, but certainly can be some good aspects to all of this. I guess at the end of the day, the old adage, absence makes the heart grow fonder, but familiarity breeds contempt. And unfortunately, in some marriages, and we've seen this uptick even with domestic violence, there has been some contempt during this shelter-in-place period of time. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, for the first week or two of this shelter at home, maybe there was great patience, but many couples are finding this pandemic fatiguing the patients that they started with and wondering, what do they do now? You have pulled together some key points that every family can go to school on. So let's just kind of work through this list if we can. And and one of them, first and foremost, and I think this is so critically important that you have it at the top of your list, is this notion of creating happy, healthy memories. So much of this experience right now as we watch the daily news is tied into economic destruction, death, despair, turmoil within our nation. But looking at this opportunity as a chance to really build some healthy memories so that when we look on this period of time, there's also some positiveness to come out of it, I think is so critically important. Yeah, we we don't always get to choose the platform upon which we bring God glory and we, we obey Him. Right now, we have a really challenging time globally. But there's an opportunity we have with everyone sheltering at home to really make room for things that the hustle and bustle of normal life doesn't give us time for. You know, I've got six kids, two adult kids and four still in the home. And dance recitals and soccer practices and all of these extracurriculars keep us very busy. With those all dialed back, now we have the the one commodity we don't normally get in life, and that's a whole lot of expendable time. And so I start off this list just encouraging to think creatively on how they can make some memories so that five or ten years down the road, a husband and wife can look back on this really hard time, but find some good that was invested, that was harvested out of it. And then to gather the family around and do some things, play some games, watch some movies that you've wanted to as a family, spend time getting to know one another, that normal life does not normally afford us. 
And of course, part of that creating memories together is how we sort of capture the time and, and reinvest the time. One of the points that you make is the notion of communication. And certainly this is a good time to not only hone our communication skills, but we're heretofore a hustle and bustle of life sometimes prevents us from sitting down and having a nice, long, uninterrupted conversation. But certainly with the current shelter in place orders, that opens up a real door of opportunity, doesn't it? It does. It allows you to go a level deeper than life normally may allow some couples to go. To talk about that area that you always hoped were that was better in your marriage, maybe it was fine. Uh, but now you want, it, you want it to become deeper. You want it to be richer. You want it to glorify God more. And so now you can actually take some time to go there for that conversation you never had time to have before. And that's actually where I recommend, it's the only one of these points that actually ties to my book, but that's where I really do recommend, if, if talking about serious, deep things is a challenge for you, I think you'll find the principles and tools from with these words to be very helpful. To be sure. And, and as we open up the dialogue for those conversations, and certainly your book can be a very helpful tool in getting that conversation started and moving in the right direction, there's also this notion of redeeming the time and helping to build some lasting memories. And you talk about this, the idea of spending some time developing a new skill together. Elaborate on that, if you would. Yeah, you know, a lot of husbands or wives may have separate interests that they never really cross-pollinate. You never really learn what, what your wife is most interested in or vice versa. So here in this section, I'm just recommending if, if you always wanted to get good at a skill, maybe it's, uh, it's learning massage therapy. You can practice that on each other. Watch a couple YouTube videos. Practice that on a husband and a wife. Or my wife is very interested in nutrition and natural health. And so here's an opportunity for me to sit down with her and listen to one of the podcasts she listens to and learn just a bit more of what she finds great interest in. For me, a great interest of mine is music. She's happy if anything's on in the background. I've got all these special playlists and different artists and stuff I like to listen to. She can sit and learn and say, what is it about this artist that you find most interesting? And we've taken time during this pandemic to actually learn a little bit more about how the other ticks, to learn a new skill, or to become better at, at knowing one another. And I think the notion, too, of maybe tackling a new sort of project together. There's all kinds of great resources available online. You can watch YouTube videos and, and mm -hmm. other ways that you can gain some new skills and then decide together as a couple, hey, we've never done this before, but we're going to, you know, build a new couch or something. <laughs> right. it, all, it all depends on, on, on your level of, I, I guess, uh, uh, familiarity or comfortable, comfortableness with tools and things of that sort. But I'd hazard a guess that you can probably find some project you've never done before that you can learn together, build together, and get a sense of accomplishment together, too. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, everybody's got paper in their house. You can get the family together and all learn origami through, through YouTube or take up uh, oil painting or, you know, I mean, there's several artists that are, to have, that are presenting doodling classes on YouTube and you can take up drawing. Maybe it's something you never thought you would take time to do. But now most of us have more time than we know what to do with. It's a great opportunity to step into something new. 
And and ultimately, one of the things that you talk about, which I think is so critically important, we've we've touched on the fact that there's been so much disruption, literally to life, to our work routines, our entertainment at every level, even the kids for school. But with that loss of routine, I think gives us a sense of sort of being uh, clumsy on our feet. Uh, there, there, there's, there's not the consistency that oftentimes uh, helps to encourage a sense of rootedness. Talk to us about how we can create new routines now that can return us to that, that sense of feeling a bit rooted. Yeah, I believe that when God created us, he created us for routine. Uh, he created the universe with routine. He created the earth with night and day. Uh, there's work and there's rest. So there's routine that we're designed for, and all of our routines have been stripped back now. And so one one great survival skill for families and individuals during this time is to build a regular routine. Pick a regular bedtime, set your alarm, even though you may be able to sleep in, set your alarm so that you have a regular wake time. Pick a time of the day you'll exercise, a time of the day when you may get some work done, when are you going to work on that, that work-at-home project? When are you going to sit and read to the kids? Create a rhythm, and I think you'll find the general conversational problems we have, the little conflicts that may erupt because we're all antsy and a little bit frustrated. More times than not, those will dissipate as once a family establishes routine again. This season, of course, has been disquieting for all of us at so many levels. But I think instead of looking at this as sort of the glass half empty concept, rather to see this as the glass half full and to seize many of the opportunities of this unique period that we're all experiencing as a means of coming out stronger, closer, healthier, not only relationally with each other as husband and wife, but certainly with our kids and ultimately with our God. With these words, five communication tools for marriage and life available through New Growth Press, and you can certainly order it online. And is it also available anywhere else? Is there a website that folks can go to, Rob, where they can order the book? Yeah, you can get it from Amazon.com, NewGrowthPress.com, and you can follow me at Rob Flood Author. Excellent. That's robfloodauthor.home.blog. The book with these words, Five Communication Tools for Marriage and Life, newly released by New Growth Press. Its author has been our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Rob Flood. Rob, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And thanks for having me very much. You stay safe. You too now. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Music